0: Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We'll be picking up on page 109. Last week, we did a rather thorough introduction to the sacraments, and I spent some time going off script and especially addressing some of our contemporary issues. We'll get back into the text here, picking up at uh, question 216 after our invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, All right, so when St. Paul writes that they should be accounted as stewards of the mysteries of God, that word mysteria is uh, the doctrines of God. It would be too narrow to think that Paul's simply talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. So all the mysteries, and that's sacramentum, so that's the sacraments, are all the mysteries of the faith. We can narrow that down to specific acts that God does to individuals and so defined. Maybe there's seven sacraments. Maybe there's 12. Who knows? It all depends upon how narrowly or broadly it's defined. But when we start defining a sacrament as being commanded or instituted by Christ, Having a word that confers grace or the forgiveness of sins, that's what we mean, and having a visible sign Then there are really only properly two sacraments Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, the sign is water In the Lord's Supper, the visible sign is bread and wine Do these confer grace or the forgiveness of sins? Yes, baptism is a washing away of sins the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, take, eat, take, drink for the forgiveness of sins, Matthew 26. Okay, Then do they have a dominical command or an institution from Christ? They do indeed. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, etc. And this do in remembrance of me. So then those fit the narrow definition of sacraments. And that's why Lutherans, by and large, say there are two sacraments we're referring to that definition okay so that will hopefully get us back up to speed and we'll start the new material at question 216 for what reasons did christ add the sacraments to the word answer so that our weak faith be sustained and preserved in this way For our mind cannot so easily assent to the soul and bare word, and firmly rely on it. For though when the general promise of the gospel is heard, one indeed in general does not mistrust it, yet in the matter of a conscience troubled and disturbed by temptations, one usually falls into doubt as to whether that general promise belongs and pertains also particularly to him, and whether he can and should also apply it personally to himself. Therefore, Christ, who is rich in mercy, instituted outward and visible sacraments to help our infirmity on this point. Through them, as testimonies that are open and strike the eyes, he himself wants to deal with us and thereby, as by a very sure seal and pledge, testify that he truly applies, confirms, and seals the promise of the gospel individually to those who use these sacraments in true faith. Doubtless, the Son of God works effectively through these, his sacraments, in believers, strengthening and preserving faith in them. The error of the sacramentarians is therefore properly rejected. They hold that the sacraments are only mere signs that do not present or only signify or remind. Okay, the last detail first, as if... You know, theology has a propensity to be confusing. And if you just heard in a vacuum the word sacramentarian, you might think, oh, these are people who take the sacrament very seriously. But in fact, it's the opposite. A sacramentarian is one who views the sacraments as sign and symbol only. There's no conferral of grace. Everything's just sort of a reminder or remembrance or a kind of strange marionette show, puppet show. Like, hey, you got to have some bread, because why? Bread looks something like his body. You've got to have wine, because why? Wine might look something like his bread. So through these object lessons, I mean, at that point in time, you may as well just bust out the sock puppets. It's, uh, and to think that that's what Christ instituted, what God became flesh to institute, really otherworldly, to wrap your mind around that. So Christ comes and gives us the height, the pinnacle of all the miraculous meals of Scripture. That's really a good way to think about it, because that's what the New Testament itself teaches us. Think of um, the miracle of the manna in the wilderness, the bread from heaven. Think of the miracle of Moses and Aaron and the elders eating with God on Mount Sinai. Think of the miracle of the Passover. Think of all the miraculous meals of the Old Testament and think of some of those in the New as well. Think of his multiplying fish and loaves. Think of his turning water into wine. All the miraculous meals in the scriptures culminate and coalesce in this one profound new testament new covenant in his blood and this one holiest of all holy meals and most miraculous of all miraculous meals in the lord's supper and we can do the same thing just very briefly i hardly was exhaustive in my description but with baptism think about what's at the dawn of creation remember the holy spirit is hovering over hovering over the face of water So the Holy Spirit and water, and then creation comes about. So water is there for creation. What about when the flood comes? That water is destructive for the wicked, but it is life-saving and life-giving and new world dispersing to Noah and seven others. What about the Red Sea? We see also its destructive power, but its formative power. It becomes a womb for the people of Israel, so God is constantly creating and restoring and saving through water. Even microcosmically, think of that uh, general named um, Naaman, and how he was covered in leprosy, and he went and to the prophet and the prophet told him to do what but, wash, bathe himself seven times in the Jordan. And upon doing so, his skin was not just restored, but became like that of a young child, the scriptures say. So God shows all the way through water how he does these miraculous things. And of course, John the Baptist comes with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, you can think of Christ's healing by the pool of Siloam. Many other such examples we could bring to bear from the scriptures. The scriptures. Ultimate culmination coalescence of all of these uses of God these profound divine uses of water by God Come in holy baptism So it's not like these things are done in a vacuum It's not like Jesus is just kind of walking along the shore one day thinking how can I befuddle my disciples? I know I'm gonna tell them this bread is my body and this Wine is my blood and we're gonna cause a lot of problems in the church for 2,000 years. That's not how it goes these things were always in the mind of God from the very start. And so all the instances of water prepare us to receive the final, final gift of God in water, the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, all the miraculous meals of both testaments lead us to be prepared for that one final and ultimate meal we're given. And that is, this is the truest testimony of why we're in the last days. Because there is not going to be anything further from God until it is all made new. So in that sense, you can, you can totally tell it doesn't matter to God whether the last days last a uh, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 10,000 years. In fact, Peter tells us that a 1,000 years to God is like a day in his sight. So God doesn't conceive of time the way we conceive of time, obviously. But we are in the last times, nonetheless, and God isn't thinking, okay, well, the last times have drug on a little long. That's not how he's thinking. He's thinking about it as, I've given you the final things, the ultimate things of this age, the penultimate things, because they point to the ultimate things to come in the next age. That's what God is up to. That's what he's doing. So there will be nothing further from God until all is made new. All right, so all of that can help us understand and wrap our minds around the sacraments. And then how it is uh, that the sacramentarians, those who just want to see it as symbolic, I mean, not only is that bad theology, but they ruin the whole story. It's bad storytelling. And then in the end, at the culmination of all things, God handed them symbolic bread. What a bummer. (laughs) What a letdown. At the end of all things, there's this symbolic splashing of water on somebody's forehead. (laughs) And this is why you have the impulse in larger evangelicalism to go back to the Old Testament. Oh, the Old Testament is where God was really doing his works and really doing his miracles and really acting profoundly. How, pardon me, bass-ackwards, how completely upside down? The Old Testament is merely a shadow of the greater realities that have now been fulfilled in Christ course, that's the argument of the whole New Testament in general, but the book of Hebrews in specific. Okay, so we are at, uh, we we are most blessed. You know what David would say? I wish that I was born in the year of our Lord, 2023, or I wish I was alive during that era of the church. That's what all the prophets, they all long to see the things we're seeing. They all long to experience the things we're experiencing. That's what the Bible says. (laughs) So you can disagree with God, if you like, on that point. But I, for one, would never want to go back to the Old Testament and live in any other period. And I think we are amongst the most blessed of all men, the most blessed of all in this age, to live in these times at the culmination of all things. It's Fantastic. Would never trade it in for anything. Um, even Peter says, hey, I saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration But you all have something even more sure than what my eyes took in. Something even more beautiful and wonderful and marvelous. It's called the Bible. Check it out. That's what Peter says. That's the new Rhody translation. But that's what he says. So the Bible. You know, did you catch that from Psalm 119? Teach me. um, It was like, give me eyes to see that wondrous things in your law. That's the. That's the transfiguration of the Word in our midst, the transfiguration of the Scriptures in our midst, that what at first appears to be dull and meaningless begins to shine and glow with heavenly light, and we see things we never saw before. But it's not just a transfiguration of the Scriptures. It's ultimately a transfiguration of the world itself. That's what Christ is bringing to bear. That's what we can already see shining through, all things transfigured. We say this in the liturgy all the time, we just don't believe it. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Well, heaven's full of his glory. What about earth? Yeah, that too. So, all things being transfigured. All things being transformed as Christ is evermore revealed. Yeah, this, these are the times in which we live. And I wouldn't wish for any others. So, the sacraments help us to see these things. And the sacraments help us to know where we are. And the sacraments, though given universally to the church as Christ's gifts then are applied to each of us individually. And that's really Chemnitz's point, is that you can take comfort that all of these words and promises of God belong to you, as well as to the whole church, because you were baptized. Because Christ says, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and your heart believes those words and thus receives the benefits of his body and blood. So that's what Chemnitz is getting at, that it's not just the the word itself, the nude word, as it were, but the word also clothed in the waters of baptism, the word clothed in the bread and wine of Holy Communion. Make sense? All right, fantastic. Let's go on to 2.17. Is our faith also necessary for a sacrament? That's a good question. Let's see how he answers. As to the essence of the sacraments the faith or unbelief of those who administer or those who use the sacrament adds nothing to them and takes nothing from them since they are acts of God that rest on his word. Here's the first thing to understand about the sacraments is their objective. And they're real whether you believe it or not. Whether the pastor believes it or not. So I can say, uh, look, here's fire. You can say, I don't believe it. But if you touch it, you're still going to get burned. See, it's real whether you believe it or not. I can say, here's a ham sandwich. And you can say, I don't think that that's a ham sandwich. But whether you think it's a ham sandwich or not, it is a ham sandwich. There is an objective reality, and that objective reality is on the basis of God's Word. So when Christ says, this is my body, this is my blood, that's what it is. It's what it is whether I believe it or not. It's what it is whether you believe it or not. That's what it is. And that's the first principle to take in, is that your faith doesn't make or break the sacrament. And the same is true for baptism. So you have to think to yourself like, well, I didn't really believe when I was baptized. Well, who cares? It's kind of like if I gave you a suitcase of a uh, million dollars, okay, and you said, well, I don't believe there's a million dollars in there. Okay, but you objectively have in your hand a suitcase full of a full of million dollars, don't you? Whether you believe it or not, it's right there. Now, if you don't believe it, you might take that suitcase and throw it in a dumpster. But nonetheless, it was given to you. You might take that suitcase and throw it in your closet and not do anything with it, but nonetheless, it was objectively and truly given to you. That's the nature of the sacraments, is they are objective, they are outside of our faith or lack of faith, and they are gifts that God gives, period. Okay, that's the first point and the most important point, because sometimes Christians will get all messed up, like, well, if I believe it's the sacrament, then it's magically the sacrament. No, it isn't. Not any more than if it is the sacrament and you don't believe it's the sacrament, it ceases to be. Neither of those is true. This isn't something that happens in our head. This is something that happens outside of us. Okay, so just... Picking back up with the answer to 217, as to the essence of the sacraments, the faith or unbelief of those who administer or those who use the sacraments adds nothing to them and takes nothing from them, since they are acts of God that rest on his word. For not our faith, but the word, institution, ordination, and power of God creates and makes a sacrament. But when one asks how and whom the sacraments profit, now you'll notice the question is shifted, hasn't it? When one asks how and whom the sacraments profit, so that we use them, we might receive not only their substance, but also their fruit, usefulness and efficacy unto salvation, there our faith is absolutely necessary. It apprehends, accepts and applies to itself the grace offered also in the sacraments, as it is in the word, as Scripture testifies. Okay, so what is the role of faith? Well, let's go back to the example of the suitcase full of money. You've been given the suitcase full of money. Do you possess it? Absolutely. You've carried that suitcase off to your home. you have it, but you've thrown it. you haven't opened it, and you've thrown it into a closet. Is that suitcase full of money profitable to you? No, it's not. Because of your lack of belief. Not because it isn't really a million dollars. It really is. But you don't believe it is. So you don't bother opening it. You don't bother using it. It's of no good to you. And that's a fair analogy. All analogies break down, of course. But it's a fair analogy for understanding that the gifts God gives in his sacraments, are absolutely objective and are given to you in full. Now, whether it's useful or whether it's um, efficacious, whether it's fruitful unto you and unto your salvation, does indeed depend on faith, doesn't it? Because do you believe that it's there? Do you believe that it's in the case? Do you open it up? Do you try to spend it? That's the question of faith. So you can see that both sacrament and faith are in a sense two sides of the same coin and both are necessary in order for the purposes of God to be fulfilled, which is that we would be saved. So how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So how can sacraments do such great things? Well, sacraments are word, And sign, word and water, that's baptism. Word and bread and wine, that's the Lord's Supper. So it is the word that is powerful and doing the work. It is that word that brings forth and calls forth and demands faith. And so when we believe, that's on on account of the sacrament given, that the sacrament even creates faith so that we believe what God says when we receive it. It's all on account of the power of the word. And that's objective. It's completely aside from faith. But whether we receive it properly or not, profitably or not, that is the question of faith. Let's pause there. Let's see if you have any questions or reflections or if I've made anything unclear for you. Yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to comment that specifically in the case of the sacrament of the altar, um, not receiving the sacrament faithfully is even detrimental Exactly.: because of the fact that it doesn't cease to be the just because you don't believe.: it. Exactly, right. Such a great point. Yeah. And one that I kind of expect um, Chemnitz will bring out at one point or another. But you're exactly right. So if you go to this is all 1 Corinthians 11, if you go to the Lord's Supper thinking it's not the body and blood of Christ, it's not like God goes, "Oh, okay, well it's not, since you don't think it is." It objectively is, and as you receive it. You are, I mean, you are effectively calling him a liar. He says, this is my body, this is my blood, and you say, no, it isn't. And you receive that, St. Paul says, uh, in, in such a way that it will actually make you weak, sick, and some, St. Paul says, have fallen asleep, which is Paul's way of speaking of death. So the sacrament, because it's objectively there, the Lord's Supper, because it's objectively there, is very serious business. One of the reasons why pastors don't just say, hey, everybody come up and commune, because you can come up and commune according to the Holy Spirit, according to St. Paul, and not believe that you're receiving the body and blood, and thereby receive not blessings and benefits, but actually... Curses and punishments, that it would it make you weak or make you sick or make you fall asleep, whether spiritually or physically or all of the above. Who knows? That's God's business. I love what one pastor says oftentimes when he's asked a question, basically. God said, I believe. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great, yeah. Yeah, Jesus had it at, his, at his disposal... Um, this baptism symbolizes the washing away of your sins. Jesus had at his disposal this bread symbolizes my body, this wine symbolizes. But he doesn't use that language. It's very real, objective, concrete language that he uses. And uh, what hubris for us to uh, say, well, I know better than you, Lord. I know how you should have said this. Let me say it that way for you. I went to a, um, I think it's declined in popularity and influenced somewhat, but a few years ago, it was the most popular and influential church in this area. I went there some years ago, and the celebrant, uh, the famous or maybe rather infamous pastor, when he went to do the Words of Institution, literally said, Jesus said, this symbolizes my body. Jesus said, this symbolizes my blood. I mean, I commend him for his honesty, and he at least is making it all obvious for everyone to see. So this is very common in "quote unquote" Bible-believing churches that they just—that's kind of just a slogan. They only like and believe the parts of the Bible that they like and believe, not all of it. As soon as you say, "Well, what about this?" it's like, "Oh, oh, 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 well." Usually, if you run into the lay folks, um, it's our pastors never explain that to us. What is that again? Because you read that again, I'm completely unfamiliar. I haven't even heard it. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, Going back uh, to the further further question, you said that uh, the sacrifice. Um, We need the sacraments not because God changes, but because we do. And we are constantly um, under assault by the devil and all his minions, by the world and all its pressures and lies and quote-unquote new discoveries and quote-unquote new inventions, and then our own sinful flesh that's constantly dragging us into sin and defiling us and then saying, oh, on account of that, there's no hope for you. So we're constantly in a state of challenge and flux, and whatever circumstances might be in our control or out of our control, sometimes we feel strong, sometimes we feel weak. Um, The sacraments are what we need, not God-changing, but on account of our changing, and we need to go here and receive that stability from God that he says, this is who I am, this is who you are, this is what I give unto you, and this is objectively true. That always regrounds us. Now, I'm probably going to offend some Lutherans, but I don't really care because I don't think this is Lutheranism. But there's this weird idea um, that the sacraments work almost by osmosis. Have you ever tried to study a book and learn it by going like this? It just doesn't work. And I don't think that you can go to the sacraments and think nothing about them and just say, oh, they're going to they're gonna imbue me with some sort of magical faith juice. Like, I, like They're just making me strong. Like I, I don't think that that's how the sacraments work. I don't think that they're magic spells. I don't think that there's magic going on. I think that the, the sacraments are always word and sign. And it is precisely the word, but not the word generically that gives faith, the word specifically. So you remember that you are baptized into what? The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you remember your baptism, you shouldn't just like, oh, I'm baptized. What does that mean? Nothing. It doesn't matter. I just remembered it. That's all there is to it. No, you should call to mind the scriptures, and you could use the catechism if you wanted. Call to mind Matthew 28, Mark 16, Titus 3, Romans 6. Call to mind the scriptures and think upon the word of God, and that's where faith is really created, deepened, and expanded. Yes, at base, when we go to the Lord's Supper, what is it? This is the body and blood of Christ. Why am I receiving it? For the forgiveness of my sins. That's wonderful. But isn't there a little more than that? Of course there is. What's the context of it? On the night when he was betrayed, what night was that? Passover. He's our Passover lamb. By partaking of this, I'm I'm preparing myself for the true journey, the true journey. Exodus, the true time of testing out in the wilderness. Um, What does our liturgy teach us? I'm just picking examples at random. What does our liturgy teach us? We sing the Sanctus, Holy, Holy, Holy. When was that sung? Isaiah 6, when he has the vision of the throne and the seraphim, the Ark of the Covenant, as it were, comes to life, and the seraphim takes from the altar the coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips. Why has the Church kept that as part of our service of the sacrament because we're to envision that and envision that we are now in the holiest of holies there's not two Christs, one in heaven and one on earth one on our altar and one way up there somewhere there's one christ and heaven and earth have been joined together and we are in the holiest of holies it's not a mere coal from the altar but the very body of christ on the heavenly altar That is now, remember how his blood is poured out on the Hilasterion, the mercy seat of heaven? And that's the same blood then then that we receive in the sacrament, which means we're in the presence of the Hilasterion, of the heavenly ark of the covenant and the holiest of holies. We could go on, I could do this for the next five hours, just giving you different. So when we say that baptism and the lord's supper these sacraments create and strengthen faith i don't think it happens ex opera operato just by participating while being brain dead any more than learning theology works like this okay you have to listen believe engage Um, that's why jesus is always saying not just hear but take care how you hear and why Jesus is saying, don't be hearers only, but doers also. There's all this active language when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to engage with the word. And it's all, there's all this active language. And so that's how I think the sacraments work. Absolutely, the sacraments can work when you're like, I'm hanging on by a thread, I'm a smoldering wick, I'm a bruised reed, I've got nothing at, but this sacrament, and nothing but the sacrament in pure simplicity, his words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, I believe, Lord help my unbelief, and you take it, and that's your lifeline, and that's great, and I understand that, but that isn't the sum total of the Christian faith, that isn't the sum total of the use of the sacraments, I would even argue it's not the normative use of the sacraments that, you know, sometimes we get this idea in 20th century Lutheranism that the only way to be a Lutheran is to have this continuous dark night of the soul and be in absolute despair over your salvation and just clinging to Christ alone in this, like, overblown, breathless, romantic way. It's just not normative, and it's not even, frankly, healthy. (laughs) Far from being, like, the height and peak and epitome of one's theology, it's not even healthy, there may be that season that you experience, and that's well and good, but there should be other seasons as well. And the, the robustness, uh, the plentitude of the sacraments are such that they're inexhaustible. And every time you can go to the sacrament with a different biblical motif in mind, with a different lens given to you, a lens of perception given to you in the scriptures, you'd probably go to communion the rest of your life and never exhaust them all. So that's, yeah, I know that's long winded. Um, response. But yes, we, it's not as though God changes, like He's constantly changing His mind, like, oh, I don't know if I forgive you or not. No, God's stable. We're not stable. We constantly need to be stabilized in His love through His sacraments. And then the real growth takes place not in the word abstract, but in the word concrete. The actual physical, you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The actual promises of God in accord with baptism. Um, The actual words of Christ, this is my body, this is my blood given and shed for you, etc. The New Testament, and then all the biblical teachings in regard to that. That's what strengthens our faith. That's what helps us perceive our lives in biblical frame. To see our lives and our stories uh, the way God sees them. And the sacra- there's just nothing more powerful than the sacraments to do that. So I, um, I agree with Chemnitz that it's a condescension of God and um, on account of our weakness, not just the bare word, but also the word and the signs. I think all of that's true. I just don't think that that exhausts the nature of the sacraments because I also think that they're gifts that God gives that are of immense and unimaginable blessing and that it is the profligacy of God's grace and love toward us that um, so he doesn't... I mean, Sure, on one, side, on one hand, he does see our weakness and condescend to give us these things, but on the other hand, he sees us as his beloved children and wants us to delight in these things. Or even better, he sees us as the bride and he's the bridegroom. When, you, um, uh, you know, when you're in love with, uh, with your spouse, you delight in doing good for them. You delight in giving them gifts. You delight in giving them experiences. You delight in these things. You're not condescending to their weakness that they don't, well, I don't know, maybe they've forgotten that I love them, so I've got to condescend to this weakness. I mean, I said it once back on our marriage night, so that should be good enough, Uh, but I'll condescend to their weakness and, you know, sometimes give hugs or kisses or gifts or, yeah, there's more to it than that. There's a full expression of love and an ongoing nurturing and love and pouring out, and God and Christ gives us these sacraments because they are absolute gifts of love. They're absolute um, enactments of His affection. That's His love for His bride, the Church. That's His love for us, and all the adventures that we go on through His Word and sacraments as we partake of them are, are gifts and uh, first fruits. Um, of that great harvest that is yet to come. I mean, we're tasting heaven in that sense, because that's what heaven is. Heaven is going to be face-to-face with God, um, enjoying him and enjoying his word and enjoying all the experiences of his love and grace as they're as ever more poured out upon us. So that's the nature and essence of the sacraments. It's not a mere condescension to our weakness. It's a profound outpouring of his love. Yes, please. It's like a mental journey through space when you're talking about this. But um, you made me think <laughs> along the way, like, duh, if you believe God's word created the world, we use the world, you know, and do you believe God's word made the world? Mm-hmm. Concrete, we use it every day, Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm backtracking a little bit, but when you were talking about people saying this is symbolic, I'll go one further. We went to, years ago, Chuck Swindoll, who was a big name, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. went to that church, and they out and out said, before they served, quote, communion, this is not the body of Christ. This mm-hmm. is not the blood of Christ. They said, not. Yeah. Yeah, and when when pastors say that, I think we should believe them. <laughs> <laughs> and not have anything to do with it. Yeah, and not have anything to do with it. I mean, do you want not his body and not his blood? I mean, I can get tastier food somewhere else, right? So Yeah, and then I want to say, because I've been to the evangelical church, evangelical free, and they would give this long, wonderful explanation of Christ, and, and then they gave the communion and they're denying it. And I don't understand. It's so logically inconsistent. They think we are not rational. They are not rational. Mm. Yeah. They don't see the inconsistency. And I'm thinking, how does God deal with this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how does he see this? Yeah, so Satan loves to... Uh, Take two good things and pit them against each other in order to destroy both. And that's, that's really kind of the ground I was covering last week. It's maybe especially clear. It's clear with both, but especially clear and easy to grasp with the Lord's Supper on account of what it is. Where was, where was the devil's first attack on human beings? At the tree. And what? To eat the fruit that hung from that tree. Once you understand that that's his attack, then you understand what God's remedy is that. Okay? We fell by a tree, we're going to be restored by a tree. That's the tree of the cross. We fell by eating of that fruit, we're going to be restored by eating the fruit of the new tree. What hangs from the tree of the cross? His body and blood. Now, if you were Satan, where would you spend all your time? Because if you got Adam and Eve to fall by saying, oh, look, you know, it's pleasing for the eye, you're going to be like God, eat, you know, even then God said don't, it's death. And then when God says do, it's forgiveness, life, and salvation. You spend all your time being like, ah, oh, it's not really his body and his blood. That's the way of him taking you away from that tree, isn't it? Because now you're just having bread and wine. You're not eating from that tree. You're not eating the body and blood of Christ. So if he can lead you away from that tree through tricks and subtlety, he will. And if he can get you to deny that reality, he will. This is the remedy God has given. So this is just the second part of his ploy. I mean, he led us to fall by a tree and eating from the fruit. God's given us the same remedy. If he can keep us away from that, he will. And if he can, whatever subterfuge and lies he can use. it's why the Lord's Supper uh, um, has always been one of the main places where uh, Satan attacks. And also, I mean, if you just think about it broadly in terms of the delivery system of God's gifts to us as individuals, it's baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what's Satan going to attack? What would you attack? <laughs> baptism and the Lord's Supper. So that's why these things have um, been under fairly continuous attack throughout the history of the church in one way, shape, or form. But by and large, the church, to her credit, has held firm um, you're, I know we're the minority here in this part of the country, and we feel like the oddballs who are confess. But globally and historically speaking, the Christian church stands with us and stands undivided. That it's Christ's body and Christ's blood we're eating for the forgiveness of our sins. And that, it, that baptism is a washing away of sins. Now beyond that, of course, there's disagreements. So on and so forth. But on those core things, I would venture to guess 90% of all Christians in all times and places have believed those. God be praised. So don't feel like you're some kind of weirdo minority cult for believing these things. You're not. You can, um, If you want a really uh, helpful way of looking at this... Pick up, um, since we're in Chemnitz, Chemnitz did an examination of the Council of Trent. There's four volumes. You can find the volume on the Lord's Supper if you want and um, find where he's listed what church fathers think in that regard. Um, It's a helpful resource anyway, because when it's justification by grace through faith apart from works, he's got cataloged a whole list of church fathers who assent and affirm that very thing. Sola Scriptura, same thing. So. very helpful book for us Lutherans, and and again, from Martin Chemnitz. Okay, was there another question or comment? Let's motor along then. 2.18, how many sacraments of that kind are there in the New Testament? Properly speaking, there are only two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These two have the essential parts required for a sacrament. Again, as we've defined it. Namely, an outward sign or element instituted and commanded by Christ and the promise of grace, namely that it should be applied and sealed to believers through these sacraments. Is absolution also a sacrament of the New Testament? Absolution indeed has one mark characteristic of the sacraments, namely that the universal promise of the gospel is applied and sealed individually to each believer through absolution. And in view of this mark, some are not wrong in that they number absolution among the sacraments of the New Testament. But since no outward sign or element was ordained and instituted by Christ for its administration, it cannot properly be called a sacrament in the way in which baptism and the Lord's Supper are called sacraments. Uh, Yet logomachiae, wars about words, are not therefore to be stirred up, provided the thing itself taught in Scripture is kept pure, as the Apology of the Augsburg Confession teaches. So the whole point is, like, how do you define a sacrament? (laughs) And then you could have two, or you could have three, or you could have seven, or you could have 12, or you could have all the doctrines of Scripture. It doesn't matter. But as as narrowly defined, there's really only baptism and the Lord's Supper that fit these definitions. All right, how about uh, 2.20 then? Why do we not count seven sacraments with the Papistic Church? Because most of those called sa- uh, so-called excuse me can't read anymore because most of those called sacraments by the Papists lack the essential parts that properly belong to the essence of a sacrament in the New Testament. Thus, matrimony is indeed divinely instituted and ordained but does not have such an outward sign added by command of God as the nature of a sacrament demands. Nor is matrimony such a means and instrument by which the promise of salvation is applied. But you say that Paul calls matrimony a sacrament, and even a great sacrament, Ephesians 5.32. I reply, Paul does not call matrimony such a sacrament as baptism is, and the Lord's Supper, but a mystery, and that in Christ and his bride, the church, namely that conjugal union, is a figure of that mysterious union of Christ and the church. Okay, so that's obvious then that mystery or sacrament in the broad sense can encompass all kinds of things, biblically. We're talking about the narrow dominical command, confers grace or the forgiveness of sins, has has a sign attached to it. We're now talking about baptism or the Lord's Supper. Everything good? Clear? All right. 221. But at the laying on of hands of the apostles, the Holy Spirit fell on the believers. What then keeps confirmation from being a sacrament, since since it has an outward sign and the promise of the Holy Spirit? Answer. Besides the other gifts of miracles, the apostles had also this one, that at the laying on of their hands, they not only healed the sick, Mark 16, 18, but the Holy Spirit was also conferred on the believers under the outward and visible form of such gifts as tongues and prophecy, Acts 19, 6. Right, you can even see this in the book of Acts. Sometimes you're already talking to believers who have received the Holy Spirit in the sense of he's indwelling them and giving them faith, but they haven't received the outward manifestation of his gifts, speaking in other intelligible human languages or otherwise uh, prophesying or uh, exhibiting healing or that kind of thing. Uh, So that's an important distinction to be made as well when you consider these things. Kenneth continues But this prerogative given to the apostles to confirm doctrine was only temporary. Now here's a little aside and and an important point that Chemnitz brings up, that the church fathers also talk about. That is that as the apostles are going out and testifying... To the resurrection of Christ That Jesus is the Christ That he has come for the salvation of Jew and Gentile As this is being spread And especially the gospel to the Gentiles Being spread by Paul and company God Allows that message to be accompanied by signs Indeed he performs signs to confirm the veracity of that message So that when they're saying this is the word from the Lord The Lord's backing that up by doing things that only the Lord can do But once that message has been confirmed by God, then the need for an ongoing confirmation ceases. And that's why the quote-unquote New Testament spiritual gifts, by and large, cease, or at least extremely diminish. When you look, for example, in uh, 2nd and 3rd century church fathers, they're not talking about the things that are happening in Acts as if they were still happening. They're not. And their rationale is the same one I just gave, that God used these miraculous signs to confirm the preaching and veracity of his word. And once that was established, they recede. Now, that's not to say that from time to time we don't see people miraculously learn Hebrew. Wouldn't that be nice? Or um, accounts of, of people in the mission field who... Um, suddenly are, they think they're speaking in their native tongue, but they're suddenly intelligible to someone else. The church has never forbade or, or dismissed these kinds of things. God can work whenever and wherever he pleases um, and can use the gifts and signs and healings whenever and wherever he pleases. But the idea that um, the, first ch- the, the first century in the book of Acts is normative for 2,000-plus years of church history is just false, demonstrably so. And we shouldn't expect it. So, Chemnitz just standing in the long line of uh, church teachers and the long line of reality when he says this prerogative, the laying on of hands and conferral of the Holy Spirit in the sense of these uh, first century gifts, in order to confirm doctrine, was only temporary. In the divine word, we have neither any command by which we are enjoined to follow that example of the apostles, nor divine promise that God wants to send, give, and confer the Holy Spirit by the laying on of our hands. In fact, the chrism of the papists rests much less on either such a word or command or promise. All right, so in short, that's why we don't view... Confirmation as a sacrament. It's lacking a dominical command. That's the easy one. Excuse me. Okay, 222. But why is ordination of ministers of the church not a sacrament? All right, well, you can see what we're doing. So we've gone to marriage, we've gone to confirmation, and now we're going to ordination. But why is ordination of ministers of the church not a sacrament? Though the apostles laid hands on those called to the ministry, and through that laying on of hands, necessary gifts were conferred on ministers. Kenneth writes, No doubt the legitimate call and ordination of ministers of the church is established by the word of God and confirmed with the promise of divine blessing. And that affords very sweet comfort. But ordination does not have this promise, that he who wants to obtain the grace of God and eternal salvation must be invested with the holy priesthood. For also many who have prophesied will hear this fearful sentence of Christ on that day, I never knew you, depart from me, etc. And besides, the laying on of hands has no express command in the word of God. The apostles used that ceremony as a thing indifferent for the sake of public prayers. All right, well, since we've got a seminarian and some f- potential future seminarians in the room, uh, I'll, I'll point this out, that nowhere is the laying on of hands for ordination uh, commanded. There's no dominical command. And there's no promise that the gifts will be conferred through that act of laying on the hands. But those truths have been used to say that nothing happens to you in an ordination, and I don't believe that that's true, and neither does Chemnitz. Let me point that out just one more, one more time for you. The opening lines here. No doubt the legitimate call and ordination of ministers of the church is established by the word of God and confirmed with the promise of divine blessing. So that divine blessing to an office and, and um, to a man who undertakes that office I think is manifestly clear. And so God gives gifts to men. It is God who makes pastors pastors. It is God who blesses those individuals in the office with the skills and talents they have. So by no means... I mean, what's the alternative? Say, say to God, you're welcome, I'm so wonderful. I'm... You're welcome that I studied so hard and learned so much. All of these things are gifts from God and come from God. So I think it's, I think that we've overdone it largely in the LCMS where we've said that nothing happens in ordination. I I don't know how we can biblically hold that. Um, In ordination, God is blessing the church and the office, but not merely an abstract. He's blessing the man entering the office, and he's blessing that congregation who's calling the man. And all of that's taking place, and all of, that is, uh, all of his gifts are manifest in the ministry and, and um, in the blessings of ministry and church together that flow from that. Okay, so yeah, we don't need to attach that to the laying on of hands because the scriptures don't, and Christ doesn't uh, demand it. It's not a dominical mandate. Let's get the... Uh, Last paragraph here under 2.22 from Chemnitz. And unction, that means anointing. Extreme unction means anointing with tons of oil. No, I'm just joking. Pastor joke. Extreme unction means last anointing or last rites. It's kind of a more more fun idea though, isn't it? Extreme unction, bringing a forklift with a whole barrel of holy oil. Okay, unction, anointing, which the papists practice in ordaining elders, has neither any command nor promise in the scripture of the New Testament. But contrary to the word of God, it reduces the ministry of the New Testament to the shadows of Levitical ceremonies. Since then the ordination of ministers of the church lacks both the element and the promise of grace, both of which are required for the essence of a sacrament in the New Testament. It neither is nor can be called a true sacrament. All right, good. Yes, please. Oh the, elders in the, oh, the elder yeah, so so I don't know exactly what he means there. I think he just probably means common pastors. That's my guess as to what he means. Because it would be the bishops doing the unction, doing the anointing. So I'm guessing he's just using elders as pastors, parish pastors, priests. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Well, we've got a few minutes left. Any questions? Any thoughts? Tracking along? 223. But what do you hold regarding extreme unction? whose element is set forth in the word of God. So there's a couple examples of anointing with oil, Mark 6.13 and James 5.14, and which has the added promise of the forgiveness of sins, James 5.15. The apostles and others in the primitive church were equipped with that gift, that they might heal the sick by miracles. And for that purpose, they sometimes used the laying on of hands and sometimes anointing with oil. But since that miracle, as also the rest, has now ceased in the church after the doctrine of the gospel was confirmed, we lack both command and promise regarding that extreme unction on the basis of the word of God. And James does not ascribe forgiveness of sins to the oil, but to the prayer of faith. And that's absolutely true. You can go check that out for yourself. The papists also do not anoint with their consecrated oil the sick who they hope can recover, but those that are already about to die, and that not to the end that they might be restored to health, but that by that extreme unction, sins might be forgiven to those that are bound to die. This, which is not only beyond, but also contrary to the word of God, is both said and taught. Okay, so they're using the point is that they're using James five fourteen as their proof text that by the anointing of oil at the end of life by this extreme unction we're forgiving sins and they're they're saying we're just doing this on the basis of James five. No, you're not, because James five the intent is to restore them to physical health. That's not what you're there to do by putting on the oil. It's to forgive their sins. So you're doing something different than James 5, so you can't use James 5 as your proof text. That's Chemnitz's argument. Is there anything wrong with anointing a dying person with oil? No. Is there anything wrong with anointing a sick person with oil? No. Is there anything wrong with praying for their health or healing? No. Is there anything wrong with hearing a confession and pronouncing an absolution? No. If the Christian is a Christian in good standing, is there anything wrong with pronouncing an absolution, period? No. Okay, so that'll help us uh, understand the freedoms we have, the biblical freedoms we have, the examples given. But we're just not going to make some kind of weird voodoo sacrament out of this thing, which is what Rome has done, uh, and then say that it's based on the Bible, when very clearly it isn't. Such that, like, the oil itself confers grace? Who would say that? A papist would say that. Would the Bible say that? No. Would most of the Orthodox Church Fathers say that, no. And so, neither do the Lutherans. Okay, any questions on that in particular, or about the sacraments in general? Okay, so we did what? Marriage, ordination. Um, what? I'm missing one. What, did, what else do we do? An, an extreme unction. Confir- did I say confirmation? Marriage, confirmation, confirmation ordination, extreme unction. And then you would have what? Absolution or penance in the Roman system, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So that would be your seven sacraments. So we've just looked at the other four, and we've demonstrated biblically and through sound theology why those really ought not be reckoned sacraments, certainly not in the proper sense as conferring grace, having a dominical command. Alrighty. I think... We still meet next week, don't we? Yes, we do. We'll meet on the 21st. So next week we'll go into baptism. And then after that, we're going to end up taking a couple weeks off. So uh, for the 28th and the 4th, our Thursday mornings just across the board, uh, be will be put on hiatus. And we'll resume then. On January 11th. But next week, and we'll start at page 112 and cover baptism. The Lord be with you.